Let's start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for a time we can uh, gather together this morning. We think of our group that's on their way to Minneapolis. Pray for their safety and their fellowship and that they would grow in uh, knowledge and love for you. And uh, pray as we look at your word this morning, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, they would be drawn to you. And for those that do, that we would uh, come closer to you and realize and recognize and grow in uh, our love for you as we know that you love us. Amen. Have you guys ever played Two Truths and a Lie? How many played that? No? It's funny. A lot of people like playing that. You tell three things. Uh, try these. First, I'm raised up with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places. Number two, when the phone rings in the morning, I wonder who died before I consider that school might be canceled. Or number three, I'm fine. I think the lie for all of us is that we're fine. On the way to a, uh, the assisted living facility, uh, it's not working right now. Let's try that. On the way to the assisted living facility where my in-laws live, um, that's working. Maybe? There we go. There's a church that we passed by. It's called Christ Church. looks like a good church. Uh, but it's striking. You look on their sign, and in big, bold letters, they have their, uh, their church motto, where it's okay to not be okay. It's strangely honest, and I wonder what their greeting time is like. Uh, and so a couple of weeks ago, Phil was talking about um, Jesus and walking, you know, the disciples, and they're walking through their world for three years, and Every day they saw healing and joy and celebration and all these great things. And life was awesome because Jesus was with them on a daily basis. And that's not how my daily experience is. I kind of feel for the Apostle Paul when comparing him and his experiences to the other disciples. I think about when Peter was out on the lake and uh, it wasn't that big a lake. It's like the size of Houghton Lake and they're out there. And, you know, they're just rowing along, doing their thing, and probably singing, following Jesus every day by day. Nothing can harm me while he leads the way. And Jesus falls asleep on the boat, and, you know, he's zonked out, and the storm comes out of the hills. And, you know, yeah, the storm's bad. I, I get it. But it's a lake. And they're like, you know, Master, don't you... you Help us, we're all going to die. And so Jesus wakes up and, you know, he does the whole calm the storm thing. Everything's fine. And they just probably carry on. Sunshine or shadow, water befall. Jesus, my Savior, is my all in all. And like, would that take 15 minutes? I don't know. But it's like, compared to what Paul, we're going to talk about Paul's shipwrecks. This is number four. He didn't get the same deal that Peter got, and neither do we. I want that. I want that deal that the apostles got, where Jesus just fixes everything now. And that's not how our life is. We looked at uh, 
This morning we sang a couple of songs, and we basically did what it says to do in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, to speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Maybe you saw the reference to uh, Hebrews 6. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. And so we're going to talk a little bit today about what it means to have such an anchor. Before we do that, uh, I want to talk for a minute about our catechism questions that we went through last year uh, as a church and the year before as youth group. Question number one, what is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own, but belong to but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. So, for starters, this is unapologetically a message for those who have trusted in Christ, uh, for those who are, uh, have not trusted Christ as their Savior. Um, we're going to talk about promises that come as a result of a saving knowledge of Christ, and that's an open offer to anybody who wants it, and there's people in here that would love to talk to people about that. Um, but this is for Christians. These are things, these promises are things that come as a result of faith in Christ. And often in the Bible we see two layers of reality. We see uh, the heavenly realm and the earthly realm. Uh, Jesus talked, to it, uh, talked about that to Nicodemus and other places, and when we look at Acts 27, we see things that are surprisingly earthly. We don't see, and the human author Luke doesn't tell us that God did all these amazing things and sent these miracles. Everything seems surprisingly natural, and, um, and God is surprisingly silent for most of, the, most of the entire chapter. And so when we look at Luke's gospel... Uh, Luke's gospel was written to this guy, Theophilus, to compile a narrative of things that have been accomplished. And it ends in chapter 24 with, uh, at the scene of Jesus' ascension. And Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and through the ends of the earth. And Acts, Acts 1 picks up exactly at the same scene. It starts at the ascension. So you could actually, you know, you could probably get away with calling Acts chapter 1, Luke 25. And it's at the scene of the ascension, and he tells his, uh, his disciples, you'll be my witnesses from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And so we look at the gospel of Luke as the establishment of the gospel, and then Acts as God spreads his gospel to the ends of the earth. And so... This uh, narrative in Acts 27 is uh, right in the middle of that where God is spreading his gospel to Rome, the end of basically the end of their known world at the time. And so it's a historical narrative. It's not a metaphor. Uh, it's not just some story that's made up. It's about real people on an important boat ride. And it gives us a lot of uh, detail about some of, the, uh, some of the culture of the day, some of the norms of the day. And it's interesting to see Luke because he writes it, uh, he writes the book of Luke and the book of Acts from the perspective of being a, like an investigative journalist. And yet, somewhere around chapter 16, all of a sudden, time catches up. And all of a sudden, Luke isn't telling 
what eyewitnesses have seen, he becomes the eyewitness. And all of a sudden, the word we appears. And he's walking with Paul, and he's on the boat. And Luke is on this boat with Paul as they go through this experience. And so, like the rest of Acts, uh, this is a scene of our sovereign God of the universe showing how he accomplishes his mission, moving the gospel to the ends of the earth, sometimes through the disciples and apostles, and sometimes in spite of them, in a world that's far from perfect, in a world that maybe reminds us of what we deal with on a daily basis. So as a historical writing, I thought it was kind of interesting to look at this, um, that it wasn't just any boat ride. Paul had been in jail for two years in Rome, uh, and actually the Romans uh, were kind of good to Paul. They, if you read the previous chapters, they actually protected him. The Jews were out to get him, and they wanted to kill him, and the Romans, by putting him in jail, actually probably extended his life. Uh, and so Paul... Uh, kind of flaunts his Roman citizenship and says, I want to appeal to Caesar, and here's your ticket on the boat. And so he's off on his way. But after that boat ride, uh, one of the things that uh, a lot of people don't recognize is that between Paul and Luke, by volume, half of the New Testament came from their pens as the human authors inspired by the Holy Spirit. And the point where that shipwreck happens is about halfway through their journey. And so if they had died on that boat ride, we would not have Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Timothy, Titus, Philemon, or Acts. And so historically as Christians, it's an amazing point of history where that shipwreck, uh, that shipwreck happened. And so, so all of those writings were after, uh, after that. And so we're going to uh, skip the first boat ride and some of the details because we don't have time to do all the, all the details. Um, so the second boat uh, that they picked up in Myra was this big grain ship. Uh, back in those days, Rome was highly populated, and uh, they got their food from everywhere else that they had conquered and beat up everybody. And so all through the summer months, uh, they would have uh, typically other people because the Romans had this passion for uh, these shiny steel life jackets. They weren't great sailors. And so uh, they would have everybody else bring their food to them. And so this one was from Alexandria in Egypt, uh, probably somewhere between 150 and 200 feet long. So this was a big boat with 276 people on it and probably was carrying between 1,000 and 2,600 tons of grain. So this was an enormous boat. Uh, And these sailors were not the millionaire yacht club types. Uh, Sailing in the first century was nothing like what we hear about sailing in our modern culture and our clothes and our music. Uh, It was dangerous. It was transporting stuff from place to place. In Psalms, it talks about uh, ancient sailors and the last line of... uh, Psalm 107, verse 26 says, their soul melted away in their misery. So sailing was not nearly as cool as it is today because then they didn't have the cool stuff that we have, like compasses, GPS, 
satellite communications, weather forecast, Coast Guard, motors, VHF radios, radar, sonar. This was rough sailing. And they weren't just sailing everywhere. You know, they just weren't sailing out on Bush Lake. Uh, they were on the Mediterranean. We think in our culture, you know, we hear songs and we think back, you know, Lake Superior. That's tough. Take a look at Lake Superior. This is two scale. Lake Superior in the corner here versus the Mediterranean. The Mediterranean is enormous. It makes the Lake Superior look like a puddle. And so Luke describes this difficult trip, and they land at Fair Havens. Uh, and Paul, being, a, uh, being an encourager, uh, predicts disaster. And I can't say whether you know, this was Paul being prophetic or whether he was just, you know, the guy had been burned a couple of times. This is shipwreck number four. I don't want him sailing on my boat. Um, so they're on the Mediterranean. It's fall. Storms come in the fall. Everybody gets off the Mediterranean that time of year. And they're at a place at anchor. And Paul says, no, nah, we, should, we shouldn't leave. And all the sailors are like, dude, that's dumb. <laughs> we have to leave. Uh, and as a sailor, they were right. Staying was not an option. Paul offered a lose-lose scenario. And did they get by a storm? Absolutely. Would they have made it through the winter had they not left? Eh, probably not. Uh, up on top, this is Fair Havens. It is not a deep horseshoe harbor. It's highly exposed to the south, the east, the west. You don't want to be there. It's an unsuitable harbor. That's what they called it. Uh, and I think there's a parallel there to our life in a fallen world that we live in an unsuitable harbor. The first part of Acts chapter 27 talks about a 75-mile run that they took the first day. And it's like half a verse because it was easy. It was a one-day sail. And so their trip to uh, Phoenix, Phoenix is... Uh, the harbor on the right and Lutro is on the left. It's a dual horseshoe harbor, deep harbor. You can see from the, uh, from the coloring of the, uh, of the satellite image, it's a little bit shallower. That's a great harbor. Two miles from one side to the other. So if things got rough, two miles to get from one side to the other to beat the wind, that was a no-brainer. Anybody would have taken that bet. And so... Uh, when they decided to do that, was there a risk? Absolutely. But there was a reward. Staying in Fairhavens offered no reward. And so it made perfect sense when, they, uh, when the south wind blew gently. I can just imagine them just like, do you feel it? And they feel the wind from the south. Yes, we're going to live. And so they pulled up the anchor and took off. And it says that... Uh, you know, they started sailing along the shore, and I'm guessing they probably didn't get very far beyond that corner as they came across to the, uh, to the west. I don't think they probably made it very far beyond that corner uh, before out of the hills came this storm. And one of the things that we have today that used to kind of only exist in pastor studies is we have some options, and 
true confessions. I don't know Greek, but I like to cheat. Uh, we have some things that we can do to look at the Bible in ways that are uh, pretty neat and pretty deep. This is off BibleHub.com. And so it's called an interlinear translation. And so in the red, it shows this, uh, this verse 14 and uh, just a section of it. From it, a wind tempestuous. And then above it, that's all Greek to me. Above that, there's what's called a transliteration. It's a phonetic spelling of Greek. And then above that, all the Greek words are numbered. And so you can click on every one of those as a link, and you can click on that, and it'll tell you where that word is used throughout the Bible, what it means, and have commentaries and stuff. So if you're wondering, you want to do some deeper Bible study, uh, that's a neat thing that we have available if you have internet access uh, that didn't used to be there. But I thought this word was interesting of this wind tempestuous. We don't use that word a lot in our daily vocabulary. I don't think I've ever used it. I've never said, oh, I had this tempestuous conversation with one of my students today. It doesn't happen. But if you look at it in the transliterated Greek, it's typhonikos. Sound familiar? Typhoon. Oh, that storm. I don't know about you. I don't think about typhoons in Europe. I think about typhoons in Hawaii and Guam and Indonesia. I don't think Europe. But the Weather Channel does. This is called a Medicaine, 2018, September. You can see the boot of Italy, Sicily, and Crete over to the, uh, the lower left. So maybe the same kind of storm that they were dealing with. That is ugly. This particular storm had winds up to 95 miles an hour. And so that's not an unusual thing, but maybe that's what greeted them out of the hills. And I think that shows us a little more what they were dealing with. And so they went under the, the shore of this island, Clauda, to try to hide out from the wind just enough to get their landing craft you know, probably a 16, 20-foot open boat, try to get it on the back onto the ship. And what that tells me, it was a beautiful day before this happened. Because you don't drag an open boat behind a sailboat unless the water's flat. One wave starts to fill it, and it's full. And when they say they raised it with difficulty, well, that's probably because it was full of water when they raised it up. And they had to try to empty it from the side of the boat and pull it up. And this was the shoreline, 200 to 600 foot cliffs. So being under the lee of Clauda didn't mean a whole lot. It just meant a little bit smoother water for a brief time while they could pull the boat up. But the sailors were very familiar with where they were going and with the northeast wind. Where they were headed was a place called the Sirtis. And it was well known at the time. It was the terror of the Mediterranean. Shallow, uh, a shallow shoreline, sandy but soft, mucky sand. And so it's in modern-day Libya. And so it would be over towards the, uh, the lower left hand of the screen there. And it was kind of like what we would think of as the shore of Lake Huron around the, uh, you know, around the thumb area where you can walk out half a mile, it's real shallow like that, except mucky. And so if a boat sailed in there, big waves would blow it in there, 
and it would get into the muck, a heavy boat would drop into the muck, and another wave would come and lift it and put it deeper in the muck and deeper in the muck. It was never coming out. And that's all well and good, but waves have a tendency to break boats apart. And so if you're lucky, surrounded by salt water, you can make it to land where you'll be greeted by a wonderful desert and dehydrate to death because it was a completely uninhabitable land. When they say that they were driven along towards the Serta, there's nothing good about that. So when they say that all hope was lost, that makes a lot of sense because that's their last, uh, their last navigational point was that that's where they were headed to. And so it talks about them undergirding the ship and trying to strengthening the wooden ship, lowering the gear. That idea of the gear, if you look in different translations, nobody really knows what that means. Good translations say it's sails. Other translations say it's a sea anchor. We don't know. Uh, the King James translates that same word in one place, stuff. I couldn't believe that one. It is such a general term that in one place, King James translates it stuff. And so they don't know what that was. And in a sail, as a sailor, that bugs me because I want to know whether it was a sea anchor, whether it was the sails. Um, but they lowered the stuff. And so they were driven along. And that's another place where uh, original language is kind of helpful here. Some of you remember when uh, Paul Finkel was here. He talked about their new ministry through the roof in Zambia and about uh, the story where the people brought the paralytic to be healed to Jesus. And there was nothing he could do. He couldn't bring himself. And so this word in Greek, the root word pharaoh there, is that word for bring, and it's always used of inanimate objects. It's always used for carrying things, bringing things, something that can't do anything on their own. Helpless. And so we see here they were driven along that same root word, pharaoh. And so... uh, it gives you an idea of just how desperate and helpless the situation was as they were being driven along towards these Sirtis sands. Um, and so of the four or five Greek words that I know, uh, that one is my favorite because, uh, and maybe should be yours, because it's also used in terms of how the scriptures were written in First uh, Peter when it talks about that the, uh, the prophets and the writers of Scripture were, uh, were not inspired by themselves, but inspired by the Holy Spirit. They were driven along by the Holy Spirit. And so it gives a very different nuance to how the heavenly realm and the earthly realm goes between the Holy Spirit and the writers of Scripture. And so uh, I like that. So in verses 18 and 19, they throw the cargo and tackle overboard, just a storm tactic, lighten the boat, try to take as much stress as they could off it. And then verse 20, neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay upon us. And all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. And so it's a little hard today to appreciate uh, the significance you know, okay, so the sun and stars didn't appear for many days. Yeah, okay. Remember, no compass, no GPS, no sonar. 
and no North Star. Total lostness. And so uh, North Star was the best thing they had going for celestial navigation. The, uh, the end of the Little Dipper's handle would appear because it lines up almost perfectly with the Earth's northern axis, it would appear to spin around north. And so if you could see, generally in those days, they would try to stay in view of land if they could, but if they couldn't, they could at least know where north was, unless it was cloudy. And in here, it was many days. So if you were on this boat, many days, blowing towards certain death, Clouds, what songs would you be singing? Some came to mind. Maybe the Sloop John B. This is the worst trip I've ever been on. Philip asked me, is there any songs? Maybe it was James. I think it was James. Is there any songs we should sing? And I almost said, what about the Edmund Fitzgerald? (laughs) Like, does anyone know where the love of God goes? when the waves turn the minutes to hours. Helpless and hopeless. This was a terrible trip. And so we can't get away from looking at this section of Scripture and saying, where's God? Up to this point, God's been silent. And we know God's there, but he hasn't been saying anything. And this is the Apostle Paul. This isn't just you and me. This is the guy And so we come face-to-face with the question of suffering, and uh, it's a huge topic, and we're going to kind of have to skim over it quick. This is, you know, you can write books and, you know, spend your whole life looking at this, Uh, but I can't avoid it. I wanted to. Uh, But some of the ways that God uses suffering in a world that seems really random, one of the things we'll find is that the different ways that God uses suffering... None of it makes it all better. Uh, There's lots of reasons, but they're not all that satisfying. One is corrective. Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5 lied to the Holy Spirit and ended up dead. Um, Illustrative. Uh, Phil talked about this one a couple weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago, that Jesus was uh, walking with his disciples, and uh, there was a man born blind, and the... uh, the disciples immediately thought he was being punished for sin. And said, you know, did this man sin or his parents? And Jesus said, no, this was done, neither of them. It was done so that the works of God might be displayed in him. God's trying to illustrate something through this suffering. Uh, constructive in Romans uh, talks about that uh, sometimes suffering produces endurance and endurance character and character hope. And so God uses suffering in a lot of different ways in our lives. The classic example, all I need to say uh, for cosmic suffering is the name Job. And I don't get it. I don't think any of us can get that. Uh, It just seems when you read the book of Job that God is in this cosmic standoff with Satan and gets thrown under the bus. And he's like the best guy on earth. I don't get it, but it's there. And so we need to be careful not to give Satan more credit than it's due, but we also need to remember that we have an enemy lurking about. 
Sometimes it's used protectively. Uh, Paul talks about in Corinthians that he was given his, thro- his thorn in the flesh to keep him from being conceited. And this one actually relates to our story today. Uh, in Philippians, Paul says, this is written 10 years later, and he says that, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, uh, talking about his imprisonment and all his other uh, issues that he's dealt with, and maybe thinking about this sailboat uh, incident, uh, has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. I think the most, uh, the most likely and the most often uh, thing that we see is that a lot of our suffering is simply a result of the fall. The disease and death and suffering that we experience on a daily basis is just life in a fallen world. Um, and we await a day when the creation will be uh, released from corruption And we look at the verse in Revelation that says, He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. And we look forward to that. Uh, But until then, we deal with that on a daily basis. Uh, And I think one of the big things, one of the big takeaways from that is it's not always about us. And you can drive yourself crazy trying to figure out, why am I going through this? And I imagine the people on the boat are like, why? Why? Fifty miles. Couldn't I just get fifty miles? And the answer is no. And we don't know why. And Luke doesn't tell us. God doesn't tell us. It's just there. Um, and so sometimes it's not about us. In this case, is it because God had people to save on the island of Malta? Maybe. Was he? You know. Breaking down the guys in the shiny, you know, in the shiny life jackets? Maybe. I don't know. It doesn't tell us. It's frustrating. I wish Luke had told us if he knew a better purpose for the storm, but it's not there. And so the theme that travels, I think, throughout the book of Acts and throughout this story itself is that God is accomplishing as the sovereign Lord of the universe. He's accomplishing his mission. And he's doing what he wants. In Psalm 135, it says, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. And so, as they are driven further and further from their harbor of refuge, we just see them going through this terrible time. And up until this point, God's been silent. This is a... uh, a video you may have seen a year or so ago. Uh, it's off Redondo Beach, California. And these are some guys on a little boat um, having some trouble. They couldn't get their mainsail up. And so they are literally being driven along, helpless. Uh, as I watched this the first time, uh, I was like, this is crazy. And I tried not to be an armchair captain, and some of the people online made some really uncharitable comments, but they had the same questions I was having. Where's the motor? Why are they fighting this so hard? Where's the motor? They're a half a mile from Redondo Beach Harbor. Why didn't they call Mayday? 
what's up with that? Why didn't they throw in an anchor? They're not in deep water right now. By the way, much like Paul and Luke, everybody lived, and the boat did not make it. Um, we don't always think of anchors as emergency devices. Usually, you know, even sailors, we think of it, okay, that's our place to stop overnight and, um, you know, maybe for a lunch break. But sometimes it escapes us that an anchor can be an emergency device. A few years ago, uh, I had the ability, the opportunity to realize a lifetime dream of sailing on the North Channel uh, I discovered this group called the Trailer Sailors that takes an annual trip up there. It's on the, the northernmost part of uh, Lake Huron in uh, Canadian wilderness. And so uh, this guy, John, and his wife, Ar- uh, I think it's Arlene, um, doesn't matter, you don't know her. Uh, they're kind of some of the you know, patriarchs of, patriarchs, matriarchs of the club. And so they lead the cruises. She was leading one of the cruises. And so... We had a day that we were going to make one of our longer trips, about 20 miles through very unfamiliar areas. And so I asked John, hey, can I come over and uh, have your Irene go through, the, uh, go through the chart with me? And he's like, yeah, sure, come on over. And so we're sitting on the back of Terranui, and John leads me through the chart and shows me the turning points that we had to make to get around the rocks. And I noticed something really strange about his boat. Gorgeous boat, nothing out of place. And I look at and I got kind of highlighted it on the picture on the right here. He's got this odd rubber tube. Everything on the boat is like perfect. I mean, he's got this weird rubber tube strapped to the side of the boat with pipe straps. I'm like, John, what's up with this? Everybody puts their anchor on the front of the boat. You go to, a, go to any marina, all the anchors are out on the front. Boats are designed to be anchored from the front. The bow is meant to split the waves. John, why is the anchor back here? And with the heart of a teacher and a patriarch, he just very calmly explained to me the wisdom. And I thought, he gets it. This guy gets it. And he said, you know, sometimes you're out and it's rough, and something breaks or you need to stop now, you don't want to have your anchor 25 feet away from you. You want it here. You want it now. If, it's, if the weather's rough, you don't want to send your crew walking out on the front of the boat in six or eight foot waves to get the anchor bouncing around. One hand on the tiller, grab the anchor, toss it over. You run the line on the outside of the boat, back through a fitting in the front, back to a cleat at the back, Done. Never get out of your seat. Emergency maneuvers at the touch of a finger. Uh, He gets it. And so that was awesome. When we talk about anchoring, uh, there are some nautical traditions in language that uh, go pretty deep. And one of them relates to anchoring. And it's the idea of uh, something being fast. And when we think about fast in our modern day, we don't really think of sailboats. Nobody thinks of sailboats when they hear the word fast. They chide sailors as slowly going nowhere at great expense. Nobody thinks fast. But fast has multiple meanings. 
Fast also means secure. Go to any hardware store, you'll see the fastener aisle. Go to any sewing store, you'll see the fastener aisle. It's things that make things secure. And so fast is kind of funny. It means moving really quickly or it means not moving at all and not budging. And so uh, we think of the word fastener and steadfast with that root word fast, make fast. We talk about that in sailing as, you know, when you anchor, you make fast your anchor. You throw it in and it grabs the dirt on the seabed and holds. And we talk about it holding fast. And I think it kind of relates to uh, John ten twenty eight when uh, Jesus said, "I will. N- no one will ever snatch them out of my hand." That's odd. Um, so at that part of the uh, at that part of the narrative, we go back to Acts twenty seven. We find that they've said, "All hope is lost." Now, I don't, that, I don't think that means they curled up in a ball. They kept sailing. It's obvious from the narrative. They kept doing what sailors do, but I just think they expected this not to end well. Uh, and then Paul gets up after just graduating from the Dale Carnegie course. He stands up and gives his second motivational speech and says, you should have listened to me. I told you so. <laughs> and then he says, well, an angel appeared to me last night and everybody's going to survive, we're going to lose the boat, we're going to lose everything, and we're going to run aground on some island. It's like, could you be any more vague? But um, that was the best he had. And so, um, on the 14th night, imagine 14 nights of big waves, up and down, left and right, seasickness, puking your guts out. (laughs) Yuck. Um, And then, just like those guys at Redondo Beach, they get close to land. Being out in the middle of the water is not the most dangerous place for a boat. The most dangerous thing for a boat is landing wrong. And so they heard, we assume, they heard breaking waves on rocks. And so then it got really scary. But at that point, they were able to take soundings, find that they had some relatively shallow water. So they heaved these four giant anchors overboard. And some people think those may have weighed as much as 1,000 pounds each. Uh, Just enormous anchors. And then they were left with nothing else to do. Those four anchors were their only hope. It was midnight. It was dark. They couldn't see the shoreline. They assumed had to assume rocks, no idea what they were in for if those anchors didn't hold. And so it says they prayed. And Luke doesn't tell us who prayed. He doesn't tell us, you know, whether this was a floating church by that time. I'm thinking the Apostle Paul, the great evangelist, he's got 14 days in a storm with a bunch of unbelievers and, you know, They all think they're going to die. Talk about low-hanging fruit for evangelism. But Luke doesn't tell us. And so that's a little disappointing. But they prayed. They prayed there was nothing else to do. Um, And so after it was apparent that the anchors would hold fast, Paul convinces them to eat because the next day isn't going to be pretty. They're going to do what they have to do. Um, 
And so they take a meal, make their final preparations. When daylight comes, they see the beach, cast off the anchors. The anchors had held fast, and so they were able to hoist the foresail. And hoisting the foresail means no turning around. Just like that boat in Redondo Beach could not turn the direction they wanted to, when they hoisted that sail, they were heading for the beach and there was no turning back. It was a one-way trip. And so they hit the reef, and as soon as they hit the reef, the soldiers like, what if people escape? Let's kill them. That's their job. I mean, that's okay. They're just doing their thing. And then Julius steps in, and I think this was his job. Julius steps in again and saves Paul and everybody else, and they all end up safely on land. And I think one of the heroes of the story that we don't think about Those anchors, those anchors made the difference. I had my own experience with anchors, not nearly so exciting, but cool for me. Uh, The first time we went to the North Channel, uh, I had never sailed in such a wild place, and so getting in with the trailer sailors was awesome. And so we navigated from uh, about 20 miles up into this protected harbor uh, and like I said, this is one of the most beautiful places on the planet to sail. I had dreamed of it for years and finally got the chance to do it. And we get into the harbor, and it's a beautiful protected harbor. And so I made my way through the fleet and got to a real shallow area because my boat can accommodate that a little better. And I did all the stuff I'm supposed to do. I did all the right stuff. I carefully dropped the anchor in from the bow because I'm stupid and I keep my anchor on the bow. And I carefully dropped it in and reversed the motor and tried to get it to dig in, and it dug in, and everything seemed good, and we enjoyed the rest of the night. And I think the girls went swimming that day and met people, and we had no idea where they were. Um, But as soon as it got dark, all of a sudden, I felt the weight. And we tried, you know, we went to bed, and the girls and Amy went to bed, and I laid down, And I closed my eyes, and all I could think of was that anchor and the rocky shoreline and the other boats. And what if that anchor drags? What if it slips? What if the wind shifts? And what if it drags? Am I going to wake up in the middle of the night with, you know, rock against fiberglass bouncing around? Am I going to wake up with, you know, people who are supposed to be my new friends and my you know, my boat hacking up their really nice boat. Like, every half hour, I look out my window. I get up, look out Amy's window. Or I open the hatch and look out and around, and it's just dark. I couldn't see anything. And I couldn't rest. I don't think I slept the whole night. I literally was up every half hour trying to figure out, was this anchor going to hold or not? And so, interesting technical difficulty, as expected. Okay, fits with the story. So, uh, Hebrews chapter 6 talks about anchors, but it's interesting that Hebrews 3 and 4 talk about rest. Phil surprised me last week. He had uh, P3 
people read the entire chapter of Hebrews chapter uh, entire chapter of Hebrews four. You may remember it talking about how we we're supposed to enter his rest. Hebrews three talks about it as well. The whole book of Hebrews is about the gospel presented from the uh, from the vantage point of the Jewish sacrificial system, and it talks about the earthly temple separating people from the holy presence of God and how it's just a copy of the heavenly things. And it talks about Jesus, and he's proclaimed from the beginning and throughout the book as the Son, the Creator, the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of God, our brother in humanity, our merciful and faithful high priest, the once-for-all sacrifice, the eternal priest, the founder and perfecter of our faith. But chapters 3 and 4 deal extensively with this idea of rest. And Hebrews 4 says, we who have believed enter that rest. And so, as I think about my experience on the North Channel of not being able to rest because I didn't know whether my anchor would hold, which was completely irrational because it's a beautiful harbor. And Paul and Luke, on their trip, wondering if their anchor would hold and not being able to rest, which was completely irrational because they're in a hurricane. Uh, you know, they had every reason not to expect the anchor to hold, but it did. I think the answer to entering God's rest of Hebrews 3 and 4 is hidden in Hebrews 6. It says, We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, becoming a high priest forever. And so with all the unknowns and trials of this life, we have this promise in Hebrews 6 that we have an anchor and he can and he will hold us fast. And our job is to learn how to trust our anchor. We enter the rest when we learn how to trust that our anchor can and will hold us fast. And so uh, my hope is that by talking through some of this stuff today, uh, when Becca comes up and sings that song again, maybe you guys will hear it a little bit differently the way I heard it a little over a year ago. Um, so, Becca, can you come up? <laughs> 